Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, you're in for a treat for the scripture this morning. This scripture comes to you from two separate books in our Bibles, 1st and 2nd Kings, which were originally written as one book, telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that comes before it. Regrettably, while King David managed to unify the tribes of Israel into one kingdom, and while God promised that from David's line, all would come and a messianic king would establish God's kingdom here on earth, first and second kings tells the story of a long line of kings that came after David, none of which lived up to that promise. The book of Kings reads like a script from the Game of Thrones. Temples are built, family squabbles lead to all-out war, and the once unified kingdom is split in two. Today, we find ourselves in the northern half of the kingdom, long ruled by the evil king Ahab, and his Canaanite wife, Jezebel. In our reading today, Ahab has died. During Ahab's rule, God raised up two great prophets, Elijah and his disciple, Elisha. As we begin our reading today, Elijah's prophetic ministry comes to an end, and God sweeps him up into heaven in a chariot of fire. As Elijah ascends, he drops his mantle or his cloak down to his disciple Elisha, symbolically passing his prophetic mission on to this young man. As Elijah ascends, Elisha continues God's work. Let us turn and hear about the initial and strange opening moments of Elisha's prophetic ministry. Hear now the word from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the river Jordan. He took the mantle of Elisha that had fallen from him and struck the water. He said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Where is he? He struck the water again, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha crossed over. When the company of prophets who were at Jericho saw him in a distance, they declared, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. They said to him, See now, We have 50 strong men among your servants. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and thrown him down on some mountain or into some valley. He responded, do not send them. But when they urged him to the point of embarrassment, he said, send them. So they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. 
when they came back to him, he reminded, he remained at Jericho and he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now the people of this city said to Elisha, the location of this city is good as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus saith the Lord, I have made this water wholesome. From now on, neither death nor miscarriages shall come from it. So the water has been wholesome to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going there on his way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, bald head! Go away, bald head! When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. Thus ends the reading. Yeah, sometimes the Bible gets really weird. In the Bible, we encounter some stories that seem so ridiculous and irrelevant to our modern world that we're prone to disregard them or maybe even disparage them as being irrational or mythological, incredible or unbelievable. And some of these stories are strange because, for one, they defy the natural laws of the universe or our reasonable assumptions of what's possible like the story we encountered last Sunday about a talking donkey who, as it turned out, possessed a keenness of insight, a depth of wisdom far beyond her harebrained, dim-witted, cotton-headed, ninny-muggin owner, right? And that story is strange because um, we know that donkeys don't talk, and donkeys cannot talk unless some very powerful mushrooms are involved. For a lot of people, when they read stories about a talking donkey or a burning bush that's not consumed or a runaway prophet that gets swallowed up by a giant fish, it's like, it's like trying to understand someone who's speaking directly to you but in a foreign language that you don't understand uh, because they're from an entirely different planet, right? It's like the American couple who are driving through Canada and they don't really know where they are, and so when they stop at a gas station to fuel up, the husband goes inside, and on his way, the wife says, hey, while you're in there, can you ask the cashier where we are? And so the husband walks inside, and he pays for the gas, and he asks the cashier, where exactly are we? And the cashier says, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Puzzled, the husband walks back to the car, and the wife says, well, where are we? And the husband says, I don't know, he doesn't speak English. <laughs> Reading the Bible can be a lot like that. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And at other times, the Bible actually defies our sense of moral reasonableness. Like today's story about 42 youths who are mauled by two hard-hitting she-bears, all because they are mocking the prophet Elisha over his baldness. 
And you'll find that in the book of 2 Kings, as you heard, but you won't find it anywhere in your children's illustrated Bible that you read to your kids at bedtime. Because how are you going to explain that one, right? Not exactly your nighttime story. It's another strange story in the Bible that defies our moral sensibilities, and it raises serious questions about the nature of God's love and justice in the world. Why? Well, for starters, we're talking about 42 teenagers who get mauled by two bears simply because they're mocking a man about his baldness. I don't know about you, but as a teenager, I did some pretty harsh and thoughtful things back in the day, but after reading this story, I had no idea that the consequences could be quite so severe. I mean, a bear mauling? Perhaps you're wondering, are we supposed to then assume that this bear mauling bloodshed was in some way endorsed or even willed by God? Another detail that makes this story really strange is that it's about a prophet who is apparently so sensitive about his baldness that he feels compelled to curse these teenagers right on the spot for their ridicule. And I mean, I am sensitive to Elisha's plight. I am getting a little thin on top, uh, especially when I do this. I can see myself. (laughs) How many of us have insecurities about how we look or what others think about us? But after reading this story, we're left wondering, uh, couldn't Elijah just have been a grown-up here? Um, couldn't he have taken the high road? I mean, come on, Elisha, lighten up a little. Get a therapist, right? Uh, these are just kids. And again, you might wonder, where is God in all this? I mean, is God okay with the unnecessary butchery? of 42 otherwise foolish teenagers at the hands of a prophet of the Lord who should really know better. So this is not just a strange story, it's actually appalling, horrifying. And yet I found online some commentaries suggesting that those 42 teenagers got exactly what they had coming to them. In fact, one commentary said the irreverence and the lawlessness and the hoodlumism of youth are sure to result in moral disaster. What? This wasn't a moral disaster. This was a physical massacre. And is hoodlumism even a word? Another commentary said that these boys are the, quote, prototype of thousands of our youth today. That only if they're educated at home and in school and in church will they be able to avoid the punishment of the Lord that will surely come to them in one form or another. Really? I mean, divine punishment of kids by bear mauling. I mean, that's going to really fire up our kids to come to church, right? You just read this story, then you take them to see that new movie, Cocaine Bear. And then you just say, don't ever argue with me again about going to church. Let me give you some helpful facts about this story that I think reveal to us what it's really trying to say. First, these 42 youths are not actually kids. In the Hebrew, the word that's translated as small boys can also and most likely here be translated as young men. 
And they're not just young men, but they are more specifically young men who are like apprentice priests to a shrine that is dedicated to the worship of idols. The strange story, it says, takes place in Bethel. And at the time, Bethel was the site of this golden calf shrine that was constructed under the rule of King Jeroboam I, Israel's first king of the northern kingdom. And we all know that idol worship and the fashioning of graven images like a golden calf are prohibited for the Jews. Jeroboam wasn't exactly your model king. Uh, He had some idolatry issues. And so when Elisha shows up in Bethel and he sees that golden calf, can you imagine what goes through his mind? The text doesn't say it, but I'm just speculating here, but I, I bet he is so shocked that he walks in and says, holy cow, golden calves? What are you doing, right? Young priests, they get a little defensive. According to the story, what they say is, go away, baldy, get your bald head out of here. The priests don't want their idolatry to be exposed. So it turns out that these so-called young boys are not actually kids. They're, They're fiercely dedicated priests of an infamous shrine dedicated to idol worship. Helpful. Another helpful detail is that Elisha probably isn't some unfortunate victim of male pattern baldness. He's not a hair club for men candidate here. He is bald, and it says he is bald, but why? Well, we know from the introduction of the scripture today, we know that uh, Elisha's mentor, the most revealed prophet in Israel's history, has just died or gone away. His name was Elijah, and Elijah was the greatest of all prophets of Israel. In fact, if Judaism had its own Mount Rushmore, it would bear the images of these three formative Jewish figures, Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. Abraham was the forefather of Israel. Moses was the lawgiver of Israel, and Elijah was the great prophet of Israel. But in our strange story, Elijah is gone. And as he's going away, Uh, Elijah passes his mantle to his young priest or apprentice, Elisha. And Elisha would now become the new Elijah, carrying on his master's work. But before doing so, Elisha will mourn his master's loss. And the ritual for mourning included shaving his head. So Elisha's so-called baldness wasn't some physical defect for which he was embarrassed. It was actually a sign of ritual mourning for his dear mentor and friend. One last very helpful detail in the story, Elisha never commands those she-bears to maul the 42 young priests. I think the reality is those, 40, those, those two she-bears were just doing what by nature bears sometimes do. They just maul sometimes. This wasn't Elisha's doing. Elisha did curse them. But in the Hebrew ancient world, to curse someone was simply to pronounce judgment on them. And this was a prophet's job, to give blessings and to give curses. To show up and to say, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. God's super proud of you. 
or to show up and say, wow, you are way off track. And let's clean this up before God has to get involved. Um, Who knows if the she-bears were God's way of getting involved, but the story doesn't say that. So you take all these details together and you say, what is the story about? Let me ask you a question. What if this story isn't really at all about 42 kids or two she-bears or Elisha's baldness? What if this is a story about what happens in a community and what happens to the people that live in that community when the community itself worships false gods and resists the purposes of God? What if it's a story about what happens when a community forgets or neglects or defies God's greatest hope for the people that live in it? And in doing so, the whole community loses its soul. And what if it's a story about the collateral damage that happens and the lives that are often destroyed whenever a community drifts away from the love and the peace and the shalom of God? Whenever it drifts away from the bonds of love and shalom that hold a community together? What if this is a story about how the idols that we are prone to worship in this world always lead to suffering, always lead to destruction, and always create a place and a sense of unwell-being. Most of us, I'm assuming, don't spend a lot of time fashioning golden calves anymore. Most of us don't worship other deities, but there are golden calves in our culture. The golden calves of money and power, self-interest, the golden calves of just being too busy, being too indifferent, the golden calves of greed and addiction, the golden calves of partisan politics and Christian nationalism and discrimination and conspiracy theories and toxic Christianity that excludes and shames and otherizes some people. One thing we know about Elisha is that he was a prophet of love, not hate. He may have cursed those 42 young priests, but he didn't do it out of hate. He did it out of love. He wanted the best for them. Centuries later, when Jesus arrived on the scene, there were a lot of people who thought that Jesus might have been the new Elisha. They saw Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus all in one succession because they all were prophets of love. One great story that you heard. Right after Elijah passes his mantle off to Elisha, Elisha visits this town where the water is bad. People are getting sick from it. Women are miscarrying. The water, it won't grow any crops. And so Elisha comes into town and he performs a sort of a miracle He throws salt into the spring and the water becomes, as it says, quote, wholesome again. Elisha comes to town and the town becomes well. Elisha, later in this story, in chapter four, Elisha visits this poor widow who is in debt to the point where she cannot repay And Elisha, by some miracle, transforms a little tiny jar of oil 
into an abundant supply of oil so much that they can't even find enough bottles to contain it. So that the woman could pay her debts and feed her kids and get on with her life. Elisha comes to town and people get well. But then he comes to Bethel and the people of Bethel reject the prophet of love. And if the rejection of that love um, wasn't enough, it left behind this wake of collateral damage and suffering and death. And that is the point of the story. The point is that whenever we reject God's love by giving our loyalties to some kind of golden calves of this world, the people around us will suffer. Our community will suffer. And we all in some way become unwell In Rwanda, there's a grim memorial to one of the most gruesome massacres of our generation. In April 1994, the Civil War broke out as Hutu extremists began systematically killing Tutsis and moderate Hutus. Uh, Over just 100 days, think of this, over just 100 days, 800 thousand people were killed in the worst incidents of genocide since the Holocaust. After the war, a memorial was constructed in the very church where over 5,000 people were fleeing uh, the Tutsis and they, 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 they sought sanctuary here in this church from the violence of machete-wielding extremists. And nearly every single one of them was massacred that day in a church. Today, if you visit that church, the clothing of the victims hangs from the rafters and the bones line the shelves from wall to wall, floor to ceiling to remind the world of the horrific events that took place there. I know it's a haunting image, but it's constructed as a memorial to remind the world of what happens when a community loses its soul whenever humanity drives away the presence of the divine from the community. So maybe this strange story about a bald prophet and 42 young priests and two angry she-bears isn't so irrelevant after all. Maybe for you and I it's meant to be a shocking, stirring wake-up call, a reminder that our work in this world is like Elisha's, to cultivate the presence of God in our communities, not just in our personal hearts and souls and minds, but in the very soul of our community. Maybe it's a reminder that every day we have to get out of bed and show up to resist the forces that that resist the presence of God's shalom, Maybe it's a reminder that says, if you want to know where those forces of resistance to God's shalom really are, just go looking for some she-bears. You have to go where the pain and where the suffering and where the collateral damage is, and there you will find where your work is to be done. Four years ago, in this very space, more than 2,000 kids showed up for a vigil the day after one of their peers, a couple of their peers, walked into STEM school and shot uh, nine kids, including one of our own from St. Andrew. Uh, Throughout that entire week, St. Andrew became this amazing uh, crisis center for the entire community. It was beautiful. 
counselors and students, parents, educators, police personnel. They filled every nook and cranny of this 100,000 square foot campus. And they were all in various ways victims of those forces of resistance to God's peace and shalom. Not a week goes by where I don't hear from somebody from our community who tells me that in the midst of that horrible week in May 2019, they found peace and healing and the presence of God. It's not so much that it happened here. It's that there are still places in the world where it can and does happen. Only because there are people like you who are in the world, who believe that there really is a divine presence worthy of being cultivated and kindled in our community. Our world and the soul of our community here would be severely diminished without you, without places like this, without churches in our community who are busy cultivating every day when no one's looking. We live in this age in which more and more people are chasing golden calves and fewer and fewer people are acknowledging their need for divine presence in their lives, but there are still places like St. Andrew and other churches where that presence of God is being cultivated daily and where the world's resistance to the love and shalom of God is met with this equal, equal force of grace. The golden calves that we worship in this world, they become so powerful that they have the the great potential to resist God's shalom. And so it's only with this equal force of love and grace that we can overcome them. And you are the bearers of that. God is the source of it. And this is why every year in May, we show up for what we call Big Serve, to go where the needs are, to to go where the suffering is. It's one more opportunity to show up in those spaces where the world cries out for love and for shalom. It's one more opportunity to create and cooperate and conspire with the powers of peace. In a world of golden calves, I ask you, what are you doing to cultivate the presence of God in your neighborhood's and in our community. Where and how can you cooperate and conspire with the divine presence that is always working for love and shalom in this world? Our takeaways for today, when we give our loyalties to golden calves, our community will suffer, and we will become unwell. Only an equal force of love and grace, and God is always, always waiting for our faithful cooperation. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.